The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Luke 17, a very short text today, just four verses from Jesus, very appropriate, I think, for a communion Sunday. Here's God's word. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. These are the words of the Son of God, of God's own holy word. Many of you, especially if you have any kind of interest in classical music, have heard of and know who I'm talking about when I say the words three tenors. Now, one of those men has now uh, died a few years ago, Luciano Pavarotti. But the other two of the three tenors who sang together a great deal in the 90s and 2000s until Pavarotti's death were Placido Domingo and Jose Carreras, two wonderful tenors, both from the land of Spain. There's a backstory on how these men came to join their singing talents together with Pavarotti to become the three tenors before they ever had appeared together as that kind of a trio. Here it is. It seems that Placido Domingo is a man from Madrid in Spain and Carreras comes from the area known as the Catalans. Now that means nothing to me or probably to most of you, but apparently if you live in Spain, people from Madrid and the Catalans do not get to get along together. They're really opposed ethnically, quite a political past and so on, and you don't find friends very often from those two groups, I, I understand. Well, take also the fact that these two men have two of the finest voices in all of Europe, making them rivals artistically. And you would imagine that they didn't exactly start out liking each other very much. In fact, they liked each other so little that they each, in the very early stage of their career, had stipulations with their agents that they would not appear on stage with the other. Don't make an arrangement for me to sing with him, in other words. The relationship was almost non-existent. Well, here's an interesting story that I've learned. In 1987, Jose Carreras from the Catalans was diagnosed with leukemia, very serious. He was given only a small chance, actually, of survival. So, of course, he poured his energies and his efforts into trying to find a cure for his leukemia. He wasn't yet a rich man then or or even all that well-known. He was just on the way up, spent practically everything he had, 
And then he was told, it looks like the only thing we can do are bone marrow transplants. Now, evidently, from Spain, you don't have the kinds of medical insurance or something that would step in. And he faced a financial, almost impossibility, unless he would mortgage everything he had and beg and borrow from every friend he could possibly find. But by chance, it seemed, a friend told him, he said, did you know about the Hermosas Foundation? You ought to investigate that. So Jose Carreras investigated the Hermosa Foundation and found out something wonderful. Here was a whole foundation, pretty well funded, that specialized in trying to help people who needed treatments, bone marrow treatments and such expensive things, for leukemia. Well, he applied, he was accepted, and to make a very long story short, his leukemia was treated and he was declared well. And so his career started again, and as he began to make some more money, Jose Carrera said, I ought to go and, and give thanks in a, in a tangible way to that foundation that saved my life. And so he looked up the brochure that he had had tucked away somewhere to see where he would send his, his uh, donation of gratitude. He was looking over the brochure and came to that fine print part of a several-page brochure that tells about the organization of the foundation. And in that fine print, he was absolutely stunned to find out that the founder and president of the Hermosas Foundation was Placido Domingo, who had started the foundation entirely with his own money. More money had been put in by others, but he he started it with a very large six-figure sum of his money. And Carreras investigated a little further and found out from some who knew that Domingo had started this foundation specifically in the hope, and he planted the clue through a friend for Carreras to find out and be helped by this in this anonymous manner so that he would not be humiliated or embarrassed by getting money from someone who had been an enemy. Very touched by that, Carreras had a very big change of heart, and I'm told he went to a public concert where Domingo was singing talked to the manager of the concert and said, I would like if you would permit me to be allowed to go on the stage as Domingo is taking his last bow. He did that exactly, came on the stage, entirely surprising Placido Domingo, knelt at the feet of Domingo. This is hard to tell, folks. This is an emotional thing. Knelt at his feet and said, My friend, I have learned that you are my benefactor. Forgive me, forgive me for my animosity towards you. The two men embraced, and the three tenors were part of the result of their friendship. Later on, a reporter came to Domingo and said, why did you do this? In other words, his idea was, this man was your rival. If he had died, you would have been the supreme tenor from Spain and possibly from Europe entirely except for Pavarotti. Why did you spend so much money on your enemy? Domingo's answer was, because the world cannot afford to lose a voice like that. Well, that's not a Christian answer. It's not a Bible answer. But it's a good humanitarian answer, that's for sure. Even without the gospel of Christ being in place, and I don't know that Domingo has ever said that that was his motive, Christianity was his motive. Nevertheless, forgiveness makes bigger people, and it makes better people. 
Now, we, of course, see it in a different context because our forgiveness comes from a particular source. We are the all-forgiven people as children of God in Jesus Christ. And when the forgiveness of God displayed in the cross of Jesus is displayed in our lives, it's one of the most powerful forms of witness you could ever think of. Witness without words. It doesn't really need words. Now, later you can put words to it and, and maybe give a more Christian explanation even than Domingo gave for his forgiveness. But it's a demonstration without words, isn't it? When we can truly forgive someone. We show Christ. We show the face of God. Today our text is short and our time is shorter with communion here before us. And I'm mindful of that. I was looking back in preparing this message at the fact that I remembered that in 1998 I preached a series of seven messages in a row on forgiveness. And one of the things for me was a frustration. I think we were coming up against the Christmas holiday and I couldn't extend it at that time. But I was saying to myself, only seven? There's more to say. You think forgiveness is such a simple subject, but when you begin to explore all its ramifications and and applications in lives, there's a lot there. I can't possibly give you all that today, but I have three points, simple ones, to put before you from this text. Here's the points. Christians should not deliberately give offense. Secondly, Christians must not take offense. Thirdly, Christians are able to refuse counting offenses. Let's look at those three things from Jesus. Christians should not knowingly give offense. Jesus said temptations to sin are certain to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now he's talking, of course, about deliberate provocations, things that we would do either from malice or anger or spite or something that would harm another person with our words, our actions, whatever it was. Now there are many ways that these things do come through us inadvertently. I know when I speak to more than a thousand of you on a Sunday and then the words go beyond to a radio audience that there, there are people with their toes getting stepped on. And sometimes I find out about it. And people say, well, you must have intended that just for me. How dare you? Well, guess what? I didn't intend it just for them and I didn't even know it would step on their toe. But I find out. But Jesus is talking not about the inadvertent things, rather the more deliberate things. And particularly things done against a group of people that he names here as little ones. Now, there's a parallel text here in the other gospel, and we can say certainly children are included. And I'm going to tell you, I think there's maybe another thing to be included in little ones in just a moment. But he was saying, you must not deliberately give an offense or bring a temptation or bring a stumbling block. The word is scandalon. You can figure out what that is, scandal. You must not do that to a little one, an innocent person. I haven't said a lot from this pulpit about news out of Penn State this past fall because in some ways it hardly needs comment and there are those that don't even want to hear more about it because they feel like, please, we've had enough. But we in the church certainly have to take pause from that and events like it. And understand that children and young people and little ones are in jeopardy in our society. I'm not here to land any more blame on a man who still has to stand trial for what he's accused of. And it's not him alone that's the issue, is it? 
It's the horror that we have when we hear that those who we are supposed to be protecting can become our victims. Jesus shares the horror. It's not often that he says anything as strong as he said in this passage that should happen to that person if that person indeed is guilty of villainous, deliberate harm of one of God's little ones. Look at what he said, a millstone. Do you have some idea what that is? Weighs at least as much as a Volkswagen. Tied around your neck and dropped along with you into the sea. I want to call this congregation in a solemn way. Certainly this is something we already do, something it's not unheard of to you, but something we need to be rededicated to, to protecting the little ones among us. Whether they be a child from this community who attends Bible school here without a parent, whether it be the child of a covenant family, whether it be a teenager from our community who's in our youth group, whoever it is, Those who are growing to maturity, who need nurture and protection, should know that they can find it here. I call you, people of God, to make this a nurturing and safe place. Now, we're doing a lot of things. If you want to find out child protection policies, our children's ministry director will be glad to tell you about it. Our nursery director will tell you about it. We're working to do that, but it needs to happen even informally. As all of you are vigilant, you say, oh, this is Lancaster County. Those things don't, whoa, hold on. I happened to notice on the news the other night, the district attorney of Lancaster, quoting the fact that people in Pennsylvania and wider places are looking at Lancaster County and saying, what is going on in Lancaster County that there have been eight, in 24 months, eight cases of teachers as sexual predators, at least accused so, of children. Good old conservative Lancaster County. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to protect our little ones and do it with all our vigilance and our prayers. Now, some people think children is all that's being talked about here, but there are those, and especially, again, if you compare it to the Matthew parallel passage, that it would seem to be speaking in a broader way of little ones in the faith, young disciples, people whose faith isn't mature yet, are probably included in what Jesus meant about little ones. That's a good reminder too because, you know, there can be those of us who are proud of the fact that maybe we feel, oh, we really know doctrine well, we've got our doctrine all sorted out and figured out and woe be those who don't. You know what? people who know doctrine well have a tendency to come across to the rest of Christendom as being arrogant. We do. We have to admit that. We need to know our doctrine, but know it with humility and realize that among us there are people that don't know it well. There are people who might ask annoying questions or or a question that makes you say, well, doesn't he know that? Well, no, he doesn't. And we need to be patient and instructive and gentle towards some that might be called weaker brothers. Romans 15, 1 and 2 has words from Paul, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with failings of the weak ones, not pleasing ourselves. Let each of us, Paul said, please our neighbor for his good to build him up. Christians should not knowingly give offense. Certainly, probably leading the list is a sexual predator or someone who violently would kill or kidnap a child. 
But don't think of that only, folks. You can do great harm with gossip, with an angry spirit, with the way you carry out a difference with a believer. There are biblical ways, you know, for believers to disagree. They're not very often observed, but they're there in the Scriptures. Or just failing to listen to another person and running roughshod over them. Be careful about giving offense. We'll quickly go on to the heart of the text then. Secondly, Christians must not take offense, Jesus said. It's interesting to me that his words that we could easily overlook at the beginning of verse 3 are, and it has an exclamation mark in the English translation, pay attention to yourselves. I think that why that follows verse 2 is that he would think, while you're easily thinking about that guy who's going to have the millstone around his neck and say, oh yes, isn't he awful? And you could excoriate him and completely forget about how you can do things. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, turn it inward. And don't just look at the notorious person, look at yourself. Because you, in being wronged, can sin in this area as well. You can do what just about everybody does when they're wronged. Do you know what she said to me? Which you're eager to tell everybody else about, except her. And you sit in the corner and sort of pick the scab, you know, of your little hurt and get all your friends sympathetic and stew in your juice and you don't do the one thing that Jesus said. Go to the person. I would assign you to look at Matthew eighteen fifteen and following alongside this text. It's a companion piece, the very important instructions of Jesus. When a brother, a sister sins against you, go to them. Show them your fault and see if you can work it out. Oh, people say, I'm not confrontational. I'm shy. I can't do that. Well, it doesn't tell you to do it confrontationally. In fact, if you do that, you'll almost surely lose. You go and belligerently say, do you know what you did to me? I'm so mad at you. That's not going to get you anywhere. But you can go and say, friend, and you really are my friend, I value our relationship, and there's something on the table like a stone in my shoe that we ought to talk about. Could we? I'd really like a little bit of your time. You'll probably get a hearing. You might not get agreement, but you'll get a hearing. We need to do those kinds of things. It's cowardice. It's actually disobedience to Christ if we are not willing to follow him here when he says rebuke. Rebuke doesn't mean stick your finger in the other person's eye. It does mean be frank, be truthful, and take initiative. And do it gently. Galatians 6.1 says, if you're doing this kind of thing, restore the other person in a spirit of gentleness. You say, why should I do that? I wasn't the one that started it. There's another dumb excuse you can't use. I'm sorry. Not with Jesus you can't. It's he who taught us to pray as we already have in this service. Forgive us our debts. Please tell me what the next line is. As we forgive our debtors. Now that isn't saying either you forgive or God won't, but it is saying forgiveness is a cycle. When God pours it into your life, it should come right out of your life and cycle around. He puts the burden of being actively forgiving as much as we possibly know how to, even on the Christian who was wronged. We don't like that. We want to say, it's her fault. It's his fault. He started it. He has to come tell me 
because he's the one that was nasty. Forget it. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus is saying you are obliged. There's an obligation to forgive. Now, somebody's going to read this and says, aha, I've got the catchphrase, though, Pastor. It says, if he repents, forgive. If he doesn't repent, I don't have to forgive, right? Well, let me just turn that one around and say, how would you like God to use that logic on you? You only get forgiven by God for what you deliberately repent of. The one peccadillo, the one little sin that you forget can send you to hell with the holy God. God doesn't wait for your perfect forgiveness. He forgives. Now, granted, if that person won't repent, there are some things that probably can't happen. You may not have what we call reconciliation. Relationship may not be put together and rebuilt in a healthy way, but that's not the same thing as forgiving. They're two separate things. You forgive first and you hope for reconciliation. But they don't always go together. There is an obligation of a Christian not to take offense. And finally, it continues in this, in the third point, from verse 4. We've heard that Jesus said we must not knowingly give offense. We must not be quick to take offense. And if we do take offense, do something about it. Thirdly, Christians must refuse to count offenses. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must M-U-S-T, forgive him. What part about must don't you get? Jesus is saying it's an obligation, not an option, not if I feel well enough, not if they do something first. You are the one who knows what forgiveness is. You are the one sitting there counting out like Scrooge your little pennies of forgiveness when God backed the armored car up to the back door of your house and emptied it on you. And he did that at the cross of Jesus. And you dare to say, I'm not sure if I can spare one penny to forgive this person. Do you see the absurdity of that? John Owen, the old Puritan, said, our forgiving of others will not procure divine forgiveness for us. We don't buy it from God. But he said, our not forgiving others proves that we ourselves are not truly forgiven people. If you can stand and say, I am glad that I know Jesus as my Savior, but boy, I'm waiting for Mary to cross the line that she drew to make us first step towards me that she owes to me, you don't get it you're still practicing forgiveness arithmetic. You're saying to that person, well, okay, maybe I can forgive you this time, but it better not ever happen again. Can you hear Jesus saying that when he said seven times in the same day? Now you say, how ridiculous. If somebody says seven times in the same day, I did it, I'm sorry, I did it, I'm sorry, I did it, sorry, I did it, sorry. Well, that's not a sincere person. Jesus says, you're not the one who judges sincerity. Forgive. I'll judge sincerity, you forgive. Psalm 130, verse 3, has the psalmist say, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Just think. Take our five pastors. Dr. Light is here. Pastor Irvin is here. Pastor DeBruin and Pastor York, we're at the other service. Let's compile the pastor's records of sin. Why, it's 
bigger than the Rocky Mountains. The list is enormous. I don't want to stand up with that list or even my one-fifth of it before God and say, I can take it, God. No, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? I couldn't stand. I'd be knocked down flat. But wait a minute. The Bible says God does keep a record of sins. And his record is a perfect record. Yours is, you know, yours is spotty. You you remember something really awful somebody did here and another one here and forgot a lot of others. But God's record of sins is a perfect record. He's got it all. He's got every detail against me. How can I stand against that? The fact of the matter is I can't. Only because God took the record and traveled with it in his hands to the hill of Golgotha outside Jerusalem and said to his son, here, there's one more. I know you've got millions on you, but here's Roger's record. Take this one. And Jesus took it and died for it, and it was all counted on him, not counted against me anymore. Folks, if you're a record keeper, do this. You might think this is absolutely silly, but I don't care. I've actually done it more than once. Somebody's wronged you, write it down. It's good to kind of get it out and analyze it. You've got this thorny, sour relationship with a relative or somebody at work. Write his name down. What did he do? What are the ramifications of it? How many times did he do it? Why are you upset about it? What have you done about it? Then take that before God and say, God, this thing's eating me up. I don't want to live with this. So first I'm going to offer it to you, knowing that you forgave this brother. I now in my heart forgive him, and I'm going to try to obey. Give me the strength to do what I need to do in talking. And then take the paper, wad it up. I'm so glad I have a fireplace. It's very useful. Really, I've actually done this. You think I'm silly. Wad it up, put it in the fireplace. If you don't have a fireplace, dig a little hole where you plant annuals in your front yard. And the sour fertilizer of that wrong in the ground will fertilize some nice summer flowers for you. And then go and do the thing that the Lord convicts you to do. Do it gently. Do it carefully. Do it prizing the other person. And ask God for his strength and his spirit to help you do it to help you draw out of the great load of forgiveness that's been poured on you as you show Christ. Forgive as you have been forgiven. I just ask, what are you waiting for? Let's pray. Father, there isn't a single person here, I know there isn't a single person that doesn't have something, even a young person, has been sharp with somebody, stepped on them, said bad things about them, argued with their parents, maligned their parents, and it just gets worse as we get older. More complicated, more bitter, and we're more clever and mean at doing it all the time. Father, confront us. There might be someone here who's so burdened about a need to go and repair something with a brother that they would even be given pause at this communion table and say, perhaps it's more important. I'm so convicted it it might be more important that I go and deal with this first 
and then come the next time before the Lord at his table. And if they did that, that would be a good thing, something you even tell us to do. But Father, I pray that you just give us courage to live open lives, forgiven lives, cleansed lives, courageous lives, to deal with the people we know and care for out of grace because that was the way you did it to the nth degree. We thank you for Jesus and making this possible in his name. Amen.